Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Could you turn to someone around you because you've already greeted them and say to them, you are commanded to love me. Could you say that to them for a moment? Isn't that an odd statement, isn't it? That you are commanded by God to do something that you really cannot command someone to do. Interesting, isn't it? Because if I'm loving you out of command, then where is the sincerity behind my love, right? And so it is an interesting thought, yet the Bible does encourage us, as you have just heard, as Paige read so well, about loving each other. And Paul states that in the chapter that we're going to start covering today. So I want to talk about that in a moment with you. So grab your Bibles and devices. It is Galatians chapter 5. We start with verse 1 in a moment. I want to say thank you for being here. For those that are joining us online, we're glad to have you as well. Chapter 5 is a very powerful chapter. In fact, of all the chapters of Galatians, it's probably the one that's referred to the most in uh, other teachings and applications because it is the chapter where Paul gives us that of the fruit of the Spirit. So it's, it's a very commonly referred to chapter as well. But what we also know about chapter 5 of the book of Galatians, that it is Paul's conclusion. We say, but wait a minute, Mark, there's also a chapter 6. I know, I realize that. So what does it mean when a pastor says in his sermon, in conclusion? Do you know what that means? That means absolutely nothing, right? It, it just means nothing. It doesn't. It means, hang on, because I'm going to talk a little longer. Well, here's Paul. And so Paul, it takes not one chapter, but two chapters for him to conclude Galatians with us. And nobody is griping at Paul about going over time, right? So it's why, because he is the Apostle Paul. I don't get that leverage. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I understand that. I get it fully. But this is his conclusion. And so we ended chapter 4 last week with these verses, verse 28 through 30. Can I read them to you for a moment? Our verses 28 through 29. It says this, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So what Paul does is that he invokes the, um, the name of Abraham. And why he does that is because he's talking to the Judaizers who are Jews who are saying that, that there is uh, another gospel is what they're saying. It's not the gospel of the cross plus nothing, but it's that of the, gro- of the cross plus your performance, your works. And so he's writing them. And when he invokes the name of Abraham, because they're all biological offspring of Abraham, that it gets their attention And so he says, now you brothers like Isaac uh, are children of promise, but just as at the time he was born according to the flesh, talking about Ishmael. Now Ishmael, remember, is the son of Abraham and Hagar, which is Sarah, his wife's servant. Interesting, right? Then he goes on to say that according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit which is Isaac, which is the son now of Sarah and Abraham. And Isaac is the son of promise that God gave. So also it is now. So I want to pause for a moment. I want to say this to you as we look at this text, as we go into chapter 5. Remember, the divisions of the text are not placed there by Paul. That is one complete letter from Paul. The divisions for the text are placed there by the translators. So 
to help you and I study the text, but yet this is one complete letter, and so we have to look at it in that light, and we connect four and five this morning. And so what we realize when we look at all of this is what Paul is saying to you and I is that this journey that you and I have, this journey where we constantly find ourselves trying to help God out, as Nathan said, or we're trying to give God a hand in our life, where we're doing the works of the flesh, there's also the work of the Spirit within our life, and there's this conflict. There's the conflict is what it is. And so the conflict is between the works of our flesh and the works of the Spirit from the works of that of Ishmael, which is given to us here as an analogy for us, and also that of Isaac. So there's a spiritual battle that takes place in all of our lives when it comes to this walk of whether it's a walk of grace in our life with God and mercy with God, or it is a walk where we bring into grace and mercy of our life, we bring in our performance and our works. So that's what Paul is talking about. And so he says, it's a real struggle. It's always been a struggle, he said, and those that embrace that doctrine of the gospel plus performance, whether you're talking about the Judaizers that Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians, or whether you're talking about the Catholic Church, which simply we find in the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation, are Muslims in our day, or that of legalists that are attending churches today and are sitting right here in this very room, that there's always going to be this resentment, this conflict with those that solely rely on the gospel of grace for salvation. So there's going to be some conflict here, is what he's saying. And the salvation belongs to God alone. It's a gift of God received by grace. That there is not another gospel, there is a different gospel. We learned that from the very beginning of our study in Galatians, that there is a different gospel, and that is the gospel of the cross plus something, where we try to help God out, and that God doesn't accept us the way we are, so that we got to give God a little help. And so as we've been talking about the gospel for almost five chapters now, what we realize in our spiritual journey from the moment when God redeems us to this moment when God glorifies us, how the work of the gospel in our life is that it many times becomes in this journey a junk drawer. So Mark, what does that mean? Well, I don't know how many of you have a junk drawer in your kitchen, right? It's this drawer set aside. And what you do with your junk drawer is that junk drawer is that you start out with a purpose for it, right? You open it. Oh, it's empty. So you're going to, you're going to organize it. And so what do you put in a junk drawer in your kitchen? Well, you put maybe a hammer, a screwdriver, some things to hang pictures with. You put some batteries in it and a flashlight. You put some other items and you organize it very well. So these are things you might need to get to. that just doesn't fit anywhere else in your kitchen. But what happens as you live in that house longer, you come up with things in which you don't know where to put them. Where do they go? The junk drawer, right? And so all of a sudden, the junk drawer, which started out to be a great plan and you had a really good handle on it and a great purpose for it, all of a sudden becomes so diluted that you don't even know what it's for anymore and you can't find anything in there. Thus, how the gospel works in our life in this journey with God is that we start out very pure in understanding that God looked down and saw our brokenness, sent Christ to die for us when we could bring nothing to the table. And so Christ came and he redeems us. So God, it looks, God looks through you and I through that, the perfection of his son Jesus, so that 
That's the gospel. It's the pure gospel. So I bring nothing to the table. But over time in my walk with God, it becomes a junk drawer of my life. So what do I do? I begin to put things in there that don't belong there. Things like, oh, the, you know, this, I, I need to simply water this down a little bit to make a little more sense. I need to add some human logic to this because it's unlogical and illogical that if, that someone would love someone that hates them. So I can't quite Embrace the gospel the way it is or should be anymore. So I think there's a couple of eras that we find in our understanding of the gospel. I'll give you two of them. The first era is this, that it's just too easy. Oh, you mean that I just pray and have simple belief in Christ and that's what it means to be saved and redeemed? Is it that easy? There has to be something more. Have you looked at my history file? Have you seen what I've done, God? You know, so I have to help you out a little bit here. So what I'm going to help out, I'm going to help you out with God is I'm going to place some, well, other restrictions on me that will cause you to love me and accept me more. So I'm going to, I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to go, you know, I'm never going to go to a radar movie. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that you trash all these things, but if this is your place for grace, then there is a problem that I got to clean up my language where God loves me. And I got to get rid of all the vices of my life before God accepts me. And I got to be baptized in water for God to really see me as a true Christian. And, and I also got to be a member of a church. And all of a sudden, your, your gospel life has become a junk drawer for a lot of stuff. There's another era. And that is, if Jesus forgives me no matter what, then I can do whatever I want to do. And for some of you that came in this morning, and this is your first time at Hope, you're saying, yes, this is the church. This is what I've been looking for, right? And you just reach over to your wife, Gladys, and say, Gladys, this is what we've been looking for. This is it. That because of grace, we can just do whatever we want to do. And that's an era when it comes to the gospel. It really is. Because what I realize in this room, that ultimately the, the demographics are huge here. And so there are those of you in this room that have not had a real transformed heart. And there's those of you that don't have much affection for Christ this morning. You're not submitting to God in certain areas of your life. You're, you're just attending church like people all over the world do today. And you're trusting that one day Jesus is going to cover it all and just work it all out for you. And he said, that's not the gospel either. No. The gospel is in Christ. There's not another gospel. There's one gospel. But yet Paul says there is a different gospel. And that is the gospel plus your performance in life. And what we realize is the true gospel is it's not based upon your faithfulness. But it's based upon his faithfulness. So in conclusion, Paul says in verse 1. Here's what he says. For freedom Christ has set us free. There are a lot of powerful statements in the Bible, but there are many that if you will really allow the Holy Spirit to place them deep into your heart and deep into your spirit, they are transformational. This is one of those statements. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So two thoughts. The first is this, freed from something, freed to something. So what has Christ freed us from? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts because I want to get quickly to this. What has he freed us to? What has he freed us from? He's freed us from meaningless religion. 
that religion that is passionless and empty and nuanced and, and emotively uh, driven religion, that there's no joy, there's no life, there's no passion in all of that. And I'm not talking about your personality in the room. That's not what I'm talking about. But the state of your heart, that there should be some immense joy in your relationship with Christ. There should be some immense joy in your relationship with Christ. And if if there is not immense joy in your relationship with Christ, then I think you have to ask the why question. Why isn't it there? Because this relationship and walk with God is more than just something that hymns you in and keeps you from doing things in this life. There has to be some joy. I think the second thing it saves us from or frees us from is a behavioral modification in your life that's based upon fear. And I think many of you deal with this in your life. It is that you want to get better, but how are you getting there? And it's motivated, motivated by fear in your life. I think what we do is we take this relationship that we have with our earthly fathers and we, we kind of mirror that with our heavenly father. And we say, man, if I did this, my earthly father would be really upset at me and would administer to me the right hand of fellowship. Do you know what that is, right? The right hand of fellowship. Yes. It's not what happened to you when you came into the front doors of this church this morning. And if they're giving you the right hand of fellowship like this in the lobby, we have some serious problems at Hope Fellowship. We really do. And so you know that you're going to get punished. And for some of you, that, that the way you grew up, that it was a, a spanking or whatever. And you say, Mark, spanking is not the word for it, right? But whatever it was, yeah. Then if your earthly father gives that to you, then what will my heavenly father, who is perfect and holy and sovereign and righteous, then what is he going to do to me when I mess up in life? And so I'm going to be good because why? Because it's motivated by fear of God. Let me tell you the third thing it frees us from. Set free from being my own God. Man, I, Reba and I have been doing this ministry thing for a long time, right? And I have never had anybody come to me and say, hey, I am my own God. I probably would just fall out of my chair and that would be it, right? And I would just go on to be with the Lord if I ever heard that. But I have seen a lot of people and some of you in this room live that way in your life. It frees us from being my own God because... If you're your own God, then you have to answer all of the hard questions of life. Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a huge question. Questions like, what is my purpose in this life? Huge questions like, did Adam have a belly button? Those are huge questions. I would say he did not, but that's just my thinking. Then you would have to go to Job chapter 40 or Psalm 74 and you would have to explain to all of us in this room, what is a Leviathan? I don't know what a Leviathan is. What is that? We've been wondering for years and decades what that is. So what has Christ freed us to? What has he freed us to? And Paul says, we've been freed to freedom. And I know that's a very odd statement. It's an extremely powerful statement for you and I. We've been freed to freedom. So let me read on in the chapter for a moment. 
some of the text that Paige read to you for context. And verse 6, it says this, only faith working through love. We're going to get to verse 6 this morning. Only faith working through love. And in verse 13, he says this, through love, serve one another. And verse 14, for the law is fulfilled in one word that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is Paul freeing us to? This is the beautiful thing about this text, that he's freeing you and I to love God and to love one another. He's freeing us to love God and to love one another. That's why I said to you to say to each other that you're commanded to love me. So he's freed us to love God and to love one another. And when we love to do something, here's the thought. When we love to do something, we don't need to be commanded to do it. We don't. So let me kind of illustrate this for you this morning. So with your imagination, you're walking through the parking lot and you come across one of our low-fat, low-calorie donuts that we serve in the lobby on Sunday mornings, right? Because we pray over these things and we just simply pray all the calories out of them. No, we don't. Okay, just to be honest with you about that. And you find this in the parking lot. In fact, somebody has already pit it, as you can see, and evidently they didn't like it. And it's been there since last Sunday. Okay? Mm. It has surpassed the three-second rule, right? You know what the three-second rule is, right? If you can get it off the ground in three seconds, it goes in your mouth and you're all good. No deadly thing will harm you. So here's the thing. And, and so you, you come up to the donut, you see it there. No one has to command you not to eat it. Am I right? It's been there all week. It's got pieces of gravel in it. There's dirt in it. I mean, no telling what's been licking on it. There's just no telling, right? And so, so it's been there all week. No one has to command you not to eat it. I mean, you don't even come to this thing and you don't wonder, man, I wonder what the caloric value is of it now that's been laying out here all week, you know. It, may be, it might be low fat by now. You never know. And you don't do that, right? No. And you don't look at it and, and you don't like, man, if I could get just a little closer to it, you know. No, you stay away from it. And, and, and you, don't, you don't give it the sniff test either, do you, right? Have you ever seen somebody do that? Pick up something, look at it, they sniff it and eat it. I don't understand that, right? Yes, little kids do that all the time and they grow up to be adults. It will not kill you. Okay, so here's the thing. So no one has to tell you to do that. Here's my thought. And I think it relates to the the donut very well. That a transformed heart, and hear me well, a transformed heart does not have to be demanded to love. Because obeying God feels like freedom. Wow. We're free to love God and love one another. Can I read that to you again? A transformed heart does not have to be demanded to love because obeying God feels like freedom. But it almost seems like here that God commands us in those three texts I read from chapter 15 that God commands us to do something that you can't command somebody else to do. Because if you love somebody just because somebody tells you to love them, then where is the sincerity of that love and is that real love? Interesting. 
Could you imagine two people at a wedding ceremony? They're standing in front of each other, standing in front of the pastor, and, and they're expressing their vows. And one of the people say, hey, I love you with all of my heart because God commands me to do that, right? That's a wrong way to start out a marriage, isn't it? Yes. Because a transformed heart does not have to be demanded to love. Because obeying God feels like freedom. But this is a battle for you and I. It's a battle between our flesh and our spirit. So that's why he says in the text we just read, stand firm, therefore. He says, stand firm, therefore. It's a military term that simply means to fight, to stay in the faith is what it means. To stand firm, therefore. And so what Paul is saying that if we don't keep ourselves in this in this journey, in this journey of that of we are saved by grace through faith, if we don't keep ourselves in the middle of that road in that journey, then we will naturally drift back to that of the cross plus perfection or plus performance within our lives is what we're going to do. And so what we realize is that there is this place where we are called by God and God calls us and we're redeemed and we're saved. And then there's this place over here where, where he, where he wants us to be, where it's the ideal of our life, where God is going to grow us to be more like him in holiness. And so in the middle of those two places is what we call sanctification, you know, and it's the place where we find our flesh. And what we realize is in this journey, in this journey, when we find ourselves trying to slip back into those moments where, you know what, if I just do this, God is going to love me more. God's going to care for me more. When you find yourself on that performance-based faith, that it's a journey and it's a battle to stand in these moments, is what he's saying. It's always been a battle between the flesh of our lives and the Spirit of God that lives within us. It's always been a battle between the Ishmaels and the Isaacs. And it will always be a battle for you and I until glorification. And the battle that Paul is specifically talking about is staying between the ditches in this road of the gospel in your life. So he goes on to say in verse 2, here's what he says. Look, I, Paul, say to you, he says, if I have any persuasive ability in your life, listen to what I'm about to say, that if you accept circumcision, Christ... Christ will be of no advantage to you. These are strong words. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He says that you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Wow, that is a huge statement. What does he mean there? And he goes on to say, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Here's what he's saying to you and I. And let me kind of push this into a, a little smaller bite for us this morning. That you can't hold on to the law, the works in your life. You can't hold on to that performance-based faith within your life and grace both for very long. You cannot do that. If you continue to live by works or performance, then you're releasing grace is what he's saying. It's a transference of your trust from Christ to yourself is what he's talking about. 
And that happens exponentially in our life. That's the junk drawer concept of the gospel within our life. That we start out really strong with God, but as we walk through this journey of our flesh and we're constantly battling that of taking charge of things and making things better because we think that God will love us and accept us more, that we find ourselves where that trust is ultimately transferred from Christ to ourselves. And he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you, is what he's saying. And then he says, if you're keeping part of the law, then you're obligated to keep it all. Not just that, but you're obligated to keep all of it perfectly. So, Here's what he's saying to us. If you base your salvation on anything other than grace, realize that. If your salvation is based on anything other than grace, some kind of moral action of your life or whatever it is, then you're obligated to live by all of the moral standards, but not just live by them. You must live by them perfectly. And as I look over this group, and if I were to be able to step away from my body and look at myself, I don't see one perfect person in this room. That was an amen by a child. (laughs) From the mouths of babes, right? Perfect. Thank you, Lord. God knows exactly when to speak. Do you see do you see the jeopardy of your life when you live in this doctrine of that of the cross plus performance in your life? Do you see the jeopardy you place yourself in? Do you see the jeopardy you place yourself in when when you choose some moral action and that's what you you base your relationship and salvation with God on other than grace? And what you do is you open yourself up to all other moral actions which you have to keep perfectly. And if you disobey one of them, it, it, it it doesn't make up for everything else. And then he says to us, because he's making a point here, you have fallen away from grace. That text is one of the most misused that you're going to find in the New Testament. Because it's taken out of context so many times here. And they're misunderstood. Because when we hear this text that you have fallen away from grace, immediately our mind goes to some moral conduct that has happened in our life. But yet Paul has already taught us that we're not saved by our moral conduct. We're not. That our salvation is anchored in our reliance in faith in the grace of God. So it's not by conduct. It's not by performance. That doesn't mean we throw those things out. We've talked about that already before. But that's not the basis of grace within our life. So what is he talking about? He is not. He is not. Addressing that if a Christian sins, that he or she falls from grace and loses their salvation. That is not what he's talking about right here. And to make it say that, you have to take it completely out of context of what Paul is writing. But he's talking about this. He's talking about 
This transition back to legalism is what he's talking about. To choose legalism, to choose that different gospel, to choose that God, let me help you gospel. God, God, let me do this and you will love me better gospel. All those, it's to choose that and to choose that you relinquish grace as the principle of your relationship with God. So Paul is getting really serious here. So this is nothing for you to play around with. This is like this is like playing around with a loaded gun. This is very, very dangerous for you. Because what happens is, if you make something else other than grace the foundation for your relationship with God, then you're separating yourself from grace. You've fallen away from grace, not out of grace, is what he says. Wow. Paul means business. So if we understand verses 1 through 5, it gets us ready for verse 6, which we live out. And so here's verse 6. And, and our second and our last thought, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. How does faith in the gospel produce love? This is where we walk this out this morning and what Paul is speaking to us. What is Paul specifically talking about when he says we're to love? Who are we to love? What are we to love? That's what, what, what we need to know. Next week, we talk about loving one another. But I think we have to first understand how we love the Father and how the Father loves us. That's important because if our, our love relationship with the Father is dysfunctional, if we are not loved God well and realizing how well God loves us, you could never expect to love your neighbor well. That's what he's saying. It's like someone asks you for marriage. They ask your hand for marriage. And so you said, oh, yes, I'll gladly marry you. They put a ring on your finger or whatever. And then later on, they find out that they want to marry you. Or the only way they're going to marry you is if you bring a big inheritance into the relationship, right? And some of you say, when I got married, you didn't have to worry about that because we were poor. Like, we didn't have anything, right? And, and so that, that's, that you would, how would you feel? You're certainly not going to feel love. You're going to feel used. Why? Because to feel love, we are loved for who we are. When we have a relationship with God that is based on our performance, it's like that. That we're loving God for what we can get from God is what it is. We're really using God in a way when we have this performance-based relationship with him. But what I realize is, as we have taught in Galatians, that through the gospel, that he calls you and I sons and daughters. He calls us heirs so that I don't have to love God to get something from God because God has already given me everything he has. Everything, because I'm an heir, sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit within our life. So we love God for who he is. So faith in the gospel, what it does is this. It restores God to us as father. Back in chapter four, verse six, Paul says this. And because you are sons, God has sent the son of the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The gospel restores God to us as Father. And here's how it does. Works. By covering the Father's right 
and capacity to judge us by having Jesus judged in our place. live by a myth. We live by this myth that God wants us to be scared of judgment, to be afraid of judgment. Because if we're afraid of judgment, then God will motivate us with that fear. Is what it is. So what God does, God uses in our life, God uses heaven as a carrot And hell is a stick. Pretty sad carrot, right? This is an organic carrot. Only the best for Hope Fellowship. I bought it at Publix myself. You know what that means, organic, right? This costs more than everything else. That's exactly what it means, right? Sure. This is what it looks like to be organic. Yeah. And so we live under this myth. (laughs) Hmm. That the, what God does to motivate you and I to love, to love him, to love the person sitting next to you, is he uses heaven in a carrot, as a carrot. Because it sort of works under the old analogy of, you know, you hold a carrot in front of a horse and the horse will follow you wherever he wants to go. So we, he, he dangles this carrot in front of our face and says, hey, if you, if you do this, you get heaven. And if you don't do this, you get hell. And so either one of them is a pretty good motivator, right? I want a carrot. I want heaven. I sure don't want hell. I don't want the stick. So God uses those things in our life to motivate us. Some of you that were raised in church most of your life, this is how you have functioned. Under the doctrine of the carrot and the stick is how you've worked. Because heaven has been the total motivator of your life and you've been scared to death of hell and so you feel like that is the way God moves you along this journey from that of your salvation to that of your glorification that God moves you through that journey with fear. And so he says to you, hey, you know the person, remember the person you just told him God commanded me to love you? Remember that person sitting next to you? Here's what God would say to you in this doctrine. He would simply say, love that person next to you or it's the stick and no carrot. Right? We laugh, but it's true. And this is the way we have functioned for a huge part of our spiritual journey. What does this produce in your life? Think about it this way. If your life was a lake, a body of water, and a body of water, a lake, not only sustains life, but it, it gives life. It does. But say that your body of water, your lake, your life, is only three inches deep and one mile wide, then what kind of life does it give or sustain? Maybe some tadpoles and a frog here or there, right? And a few, and, and, and that's about maybe it in a few minnows. But let the sun come out 
and let there be a drought for a, a short amount of time. And what happens to your three inches of water? All of a sudden it completely evaporates. You see, when our life is built on the doctrine of the stick and the carrot, when our life is built upon that of performance for you and I outside of grace, then our life is the lake, but it's three inches deep and a mile wide. And all it takes is those moments when God does not perform the way you want him to perform. When something happens in your life and you prayed for it and it doesn't go the way you want it to go. When bad things do happen to you as a good person in those moments, it's like the sun coming out and it bakes your little lake and it dries up all the water. Why? Because your love relationship with God is three inches deep because you think you always have to earn it and it's based upon your performance. And that's why some of you in the room are exasperated with your spiritual life. You're worn out with this and you feel dried up and you feel like you're in a spiritual drought because the relationship has always been built on something else other than purely grace in the gospel. And it's a three inch deep lake that all it needs is about three or four hot sunny days and it's dry. That's what Paul is saying. And the doctrine of the carrot and the stick will produce a surface level experience with God. And underneath that surface of three inches is things like pride and distrust and judgmentalism and anger and division and selfishness. And you can only love those around you at a surface level. Because real love for God only grows in the security of the love of God for me. And I can't love you. I can't love you three miles deep if my love for God is three inches deep. And that's what Paul is teaching us. And when you know your father loves you, You want to be with him. And I think some of you struggle with that presence with God this morning. Can I show you a family picture? This is my son Bradley and myself. I had told you last month that we took an adventure for 10 days to Colorado and Utah. And we've been planning it for a long time together. And we, we drove over 4,000 miles, over 4,000 miles together. We went almost five days in my truck back there and sleeping in the same tent without a shower. You love somebody a lot when that goes down, right? Yeah, you do. My son, Brad, is married to my daughter in love, Marcy, who I love greatly. They blessed Reba and I with Sayla Gray, our our two-year-old granddaughter, and soon-to-be Garrett, our grandson, first grandson. Bradley is his own man. He can make his own decisions. I didn't force him to go with me and be stuck in a car for over 4,000 miles and not take baths often. I didn't force him to do all of that. 
He chose to be with his father. Why? And I say this in my great imperfection, so take it as that, and nothing beyond that. Because he, he knows that I love him, not with a three-inch relationship, but he knows that I love him with a three-mile-deep relationship. Because my love for my son is not based upon anything that he brings to the table, but it's based upon one fact, and that is that he is my child. For some of you, you've been avoiding God's presence. For some of you, you have struggled with being in this intimate relationship with God because you're not sure about how God feels about you. Because you have been cultivating for years a three-inch relationship with him because it's been based upon your faithfulness and not his faithfulness. Can I tell you what the gospel is? The gospel, in truth, is that God the Father saw our dysfunction in the book of Genesis. And he made a promise that he would fix that. And so at the appropriate time, the Father sent his son Jesus to the world. And he lived like a man, but he had a perfect life in this world. And then he was falsely accused, arrested, and nailed to a Roman cross. And so what the father did is he allowed his son to be beaten with the stick that was meant for you and I. But yet he didn't resent you and I as his son was being beaten beaten with this stick that was meant for you and I. He didn't resent us, but he loved us to the point that he gave us the carrot free. And we bring nothing to the table to earn it. Anything outside of that is not grace. And anything outside of that is based on you and it's three inches deep and it will never bring the freedom in your life that you desire. So where are you? A lot of times we, we rush through this. Janae, you can come. I, I actually forgot to tell you to come out. She's somewhere back there. Yeah, I just got all caught up in sticks and carrots and stuff, but... Can I tell you, your father wants to be with you. As, as much as I wanted to be with my son Bradley those days, much more than that, because I'm human and I could never, I think, have that kind of love for anyone that the father has for us. God wants to be with you. 
all of us. You see, in all of Paul's writings in Galatians, as hard as they are, ah, he even called the Jewish people children of Hagar. I mean, that's fighting words. As hard as he was, that all these words to them and to you and I are spoken in great love because he doesn't want you to miss the relationship that you were designed for from the beginning with God. Religion will not feel that in your life. Relationships with other human beings will not even feel that in your life. Vices and sex and other things will not fill those voids in your life. Because you were created for fellowship with Him from the very beginning. Every one of you. But you will never have the fellowship that you were designed to have with God until your relationship with Him goes from three inches to three miles. that's a work of grace in your life that's a work of you embracing the gospel well Mark I want to love everybody around me and I want to love people and sometimes they're just hard to love and I realize that how do you, how do, you do that you can't, you, do, you can't do it outside the gospel your father wants to spend time with you for you to open your heart, your mind, for you to confess to him everything in your life. And the beauty of the Father is that there is no retaliation from him. There's no, oh, wait a minute, give me the carrot back, let me get the stick out for you. No. But there's great love. And that love transforms your heart so that you don't have to be commanded to love. That's the way God works in our life. So for a moment, would you, would you take a posture of prayer with me? Whether it's bowing your heads or closing your eyes or just sitting there silently. There's no magic position here, I guess, to put yourself in other than a position of humility. Where you say, God, I can't, but you can. Because he wants to be with you today. So, Father, as we pray together, look in our hearts by the power of your spirit God transform us today because what we realize is that this is beyond our ability to grasp the gospel so God by your spirit reveal that to us today 
God, we relinquish our works. We relinquish our performance. We relinquish our fears. We push them to the side. We give them to you. We lay them at your feet. And we trust you to do the work in our hearts that only you can do. Father, it is so tiring to live a life with a three-inch deep relationship. Because God, as you know, life doesn't always go our way. So God, transition us in light of the gospel to the three-mile relationship with you. Move us beyond ourselves to you, Lord, this morning. Father, let us be quick to repent. Let us quick to be to confess to you. Let us be quick to open our hearts and our lives to you, Lord. Because you're our Father. And you love us. And nothing will ever change that. So God, we relinquish the doctrine of the carrot and the stick in our life. And we trust you today, Lord. Because you want to be with us. And we thank you for that, Lord. In your name we pray.